Welcome to Bourbon in the Back Room. Pour yourself a shot and let's talk South Carolina politics. First person I ever voted for was me. I mean, I, this, is, this is no kidding. I'm running. You know, back then, if, if it had been now, I'd have been just tortured. I, I didn't realize I wasn't even registered to vote. So I went campaigning and it dawned on me one day before the election. I'm like, golly, I haven't even registered to vote. Friends, listeners, we are so glad to have you back for a very special presentation on... Bourbon in the Back Room, the podcast where you get what really happens in South Carolina politics. And remember, Joel, we are the number one political podcast of South Carolina and in the top 10% of all podcasts in America, and that's because of our great listeners who make it happen. We are so excited to have you back today. And remember, we love to get messages from you, so um, check us out on Facebook or Twitter, B-I-T-B-R, or send us an email at bourboninthebackroom at gmail.com. We want to hear what you have to say as we continue on listening to what's happening in South Carolina politics and government. Joel, we've got such an interesting guest today. I say let's just go straight to our guest and have a conversation with him about his role in South Carolina and across the world. Why don't you introduce our special guest today? This is, I couldn't agree with you more, and this is someone who um, I have known since I was a child. Um, he, he's a guy that I've always just respected so much, and we have been texting for about the last year, and I would say, hey, can you come on? He'd say, I would love to, but I'm in Ukraine right now. <laughs> or Zimbabwe. Right. <laughs> but, but I don't think our guest needs any introduction other than to tell you he is from the great small town of Society Hill of South Carolina, the former governor of South Carolina and executive director of the UN World Food Program, none other than the Honorable David Beasley. Governor Beasley, welcome to the show. Oh, what a great pleasure it is to be with you guys. I mean, wow. I mean, <laughs> you made it in the back time. room and big time. I mean, the Nobel doesn't even come close to this. <laughs> well, Governor, I like to think, you know, you were in Rome for several years handling world affairs, and yeah, that was nice and a big deal, but now you get to hang out in Forest Acres with Vincent Shaheen and Joel Lurie. Does it get any better than that? It doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> oh. Governor, before we ask any questions, I, I'm a, I, I will Never be forgiven if I don't tell you this, but my sweet 83-year-old mother, Susan Lurie, said to tell you hello. Oh, my gosh. Big fan of yours. She was amazing back in the day. Your daddy, of course, he and I were great friends. When you were a little little whippersnapper running around the the Senate and House chambers back when, back in the 70s. Yes, sir. (laughs) What year were you born, by the way? 62. Oh, my gosh. So you got it right. But she said to tell you hello. Governor, for the— 1% 1% of our listeners who might not know who you are, tell us about David Beasley. Tell us about Society Hill, um, where'd you go to college, children, grandchildren. Let's just talk a little bit about David Beasley, the person, before we get into the public. Yeah, so, what brought you to politics in South Carolina? And I know a lot of it was was home for you, so start there. You know, my I didn't know this until after I got elected. Now, my dad had been in the House of Representatives. And I, I didn't a, know that. I was a little kid. Well, his, and his name? His name was Richard L. Beasley in the late 50s, early 60s. Cool. And so that's the only extent I knew about my family in politics. But I was two, three, four years old. And so what happens uh, later on, uh, I was at Clemson University. And the reason yeah, I went go Tigers. Yeah, I went there. I, my family was big Carolina right. fans. But uh, Tommy Suggs, who was a big quarterback in Carolina, from sure. the hometown of Lamar, that's where we were from. Right. And my brother, Rick, was a great quarterback, All-American, this, this, and this. And so 
He ends up not going to Carolina, goes to Clemson. So all uh, of a sudden, boom, we're, we're Clemson fans. You're a Clemson fans. family all of a sudden. So I go to Clemson, That's cool. majoring in microbiology, planning mm-hmm. on going I to medical like school. I we channeled each other because I went to Clemson. I was going to be a veterinarian, and I'm really interested to hear why you changed. So you the were there in veterinary because I, <laughs> I couldn't do the class. So here's what here's what happened: the junior year at Clemson, I decide I don't know where in the world this came from. I was going to run for the House of Representatives. Yeah, that's what I wanted to know. You weren't. You were 21 years old. No, no, I was 20. You were 20 years old. And at well, Clemson, so you were still at Clemson when this. Was I was a home. junior at Clemson. Was okay. that really just a way to meet girls, Governor? No, it worked. It worked. It worked. And so here I was. Plan on going to medical school right. or play pro ball or baseball, and I wasn't good enough. And you know, back then you think you're good yeah. enough to do anything. Sure. And so I got this wild idea. I'd run for the House of Representatives, <laughs> and I won. Very controversial election. Then yeah, that after, would have been in the Democratic primary. The oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There weren't any Republicans right. back then. Right. That was we, 1978. We call those you know. the good old days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was the good, good old days. My gosh. That back, back then you had some people had some sense, know. you know. Anyway, so— I get elected, and next thing I find out is that my dad, of course, had been in the House. Right. My granddad had been in politics. My great-granddad yeah. had been in politics. Yeah. My great-great-grandfather yeah. was elected blood. to the same House seat oh, awesome. 100 years to the day I had been elected. And his daddy was the sheriff of Darlington County back when sheriff was a big deal. Particularly in a small town like Darlington County. Sheriff in Darlington County still is a big deal. It was a big, <laughs> I said exactly right. All right, so, go, so Governor. So you have to finish college while you're so I transferred down to Carolina ah, to finish up. Okay. And the medical school, I couldn't work out the medical school labs and class schedule in yeah. conflict with the re- the session of the house. And so the law school was only three blocks away. So I was like one <laughs> afternoon, I said, well, I'll go check out the law story. school. So I walked down to the law school, and they said, yeah, we can work out your classes where it won't conflict so bad. I said, all right, I'll get my law degree. I'll go back and get my <laughs> medical degree later. I just never went and got my medical degree. <laughs> probably that's, wouldn't have, that, probably that, would have failed I anyway. I never knew that. And, of course, we have a lot of mutual friends that you were in law school. I want to talk about that race in, I guess, 1978. <clears throat> but before we do that, real quickly, tell us about your family. Okay, children. How many children? Any grandchildren? Well, when Mary and I moved to Rome to take the responsibility of the World Food Program, we had uh, no married children, no grandchildren. And we came back from Rome. We had three married children out of four and two grandchildren. Now we have three grandchildren. What a gift. Congratulations. Joel and I, in this past year, have just had our first grandkids. Oh, we have a three. Not together, though. No. Well, you know, nowadays, different times. But anyway. I wouldn't mind mind a uh, Shaheen child meeting a Lurie child. Uh, Oh, well, you know. That is true. That that, that is true. Yeah. And and he has a grandson, and I have a granddaughter. So you have three grandchildren. Three grand, three-year-old, two-year-old, eight-month-old. Boys, girls. Boy, boy, girl. That's great. Congratulations. Oh, it, it is and, great. And just for our listeners, you still live at home. I mean, still live you're at, still the, a Darlington at the farm in Darlington County. Our families lived there for about 300 and something years. And, you know, that's just people are like, why in the world? I said, well, it's home. Yeah. Well, please give Mary Wood Beasley our best. She is just always a, a woman of such grace and beauty. And, and even in some of the recent pictures I've seen uh, um, of her interviews, she just hasn't changed a bit. So she, all of us have gotten a, older, uh, and she is still as angel. beautiful as she was the day I she, met her. She really, really is. But <laughs> you make sure you give your mother a big hug for me. My I, I goodness, will. she was an angel. All right, huh. 1978, 20-year-old David Beasley, who's not old enough to drink liquor, is running 
Four. Yeah, it was. You could drink at 18, but then. You could drink yeah, beer at yeah. 18, but not good, liquor. Like we said, it was a good no, old you could, oh, you could drink okay. beer at 18, but not liquor at 21. But they, cha- they, they changed the beer drinking age while I was in the house. I fought it tooth and nail. I thought it was the dumbest <laughs> idea. I still think it's the dumbest idea. You're old enough to go die for your country. You're old enough Absolutely. to make a decision about getting a, drinking a beer. Who did you run against? Was it an incumbent? And tell us about the 1978 election of David Beasley for the House of Representatives. Oh, my gosh. I was a kid, you know. You're not knowing much of anything, and you'd go from Door to door, and then I was. I would leave Clemson uh, in the afternoon, my last class on Thursday, drive literally to get home about midnight, hit the midnight shifts coming off the, you know, the big the companies and the. I love it, man. That's oh, great. my gosh. That was, a, that was the old school way of politics. It was. Just and this, you didn't have yeah. cell phones and all right. that kind of stuff back then. And you hit the shifts and you went to the bars and you went to the stores. Country you, stores. It was, oh, stores, man, those yeah. country stores and the old guys yeah. hanging around, drinking the coffee and lying about this yeah. and lying about that, you know. And, and it was just so much fun. It really, really was. I didn't know diddly squat, but people <laughs> would ask, aren't you a little bit too young? Well, you know, us young people, we didn't cause all these problems. How about let us be part of the solution? Yeah. I said, wouldn't you rather be young than old? Oh, yeah, 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 you know. South, I think, I'm convinced South Carolina likes to vote for young people. Well, you, you know, look, Joel you and were I both, young. I was 28 when I ran. I was 36 when yeah. I was running for yeah. governor. Were you the yeah. youngest House member ever elected at 20 years old? He and Bakari Sellers have this Larry fight. Martin. Was a one like one month uh, younger than me or something like well, y'all that. Well, y'all were in the same class. Yeah, we were in the same same and time. And Uncle Bob would have been elected two years before you, probably. He was elected in 76. Yeah, and you were 78? And I was a 78. Who was your opponent in 1978? Gary Bird, a farmer. I mean, a Clemson football player now on the famous Clemson football wow. team. He was a great guy. I didn't know him. First person I ever voted for was me. I mean, I, I, this is this is no kidding. I'm running, and you know, back then, if, if it had been now, I'd have been just tortured. Yeah. I I didn't realize I wasn't even registered to vote. <laughs> so I went campaigning. It dawned on me one day before the election. I'm like, golly, I haven't even registered to vote. And <laughs> no so I had knows. to sneak down there to the registration office and get registered. It wasn't a big deal back then because you didn't have phone, cell phones right. and cameras right. and stuff. So I think I was taking a picture of yeah. it back then. So I won by three votes, literally by three votes. Very controversial election. Was elections. he an incumbent or was it an open seat? He was an incumbent, very respected, very liked guy. Uh-huh. And uh, what was interesting, uh, that seat um, where I grew up in Lamar was where we were all known as basketball, right. baseball, football players sure. and all this stuff, the Beasley family. That was the other side of the county. My and, mom and dad had divorced. And, and, and just bought, for our listeners, Lamar, if you think Darlington County is small, Lamar is small. Right? Yeah, Lamar is small, but yeah. Lamar is like, it produced something, I LaVon yeah, Kirkland. I go on some great athletes, Tommy Suggs, Rick Beasley, yada, yada. And so... The district I ended up running from was in the other side of the county. Uh, Dad, mom had divorced, and he bought this property. Uh, old family friends on the other side of the county, and I didn't know anybody over there. <laughs> so I literally was starting from scratch, and God, it was fun. That's great. <laughs> All right, so you were in the house. You're a young man. You are a Democrat at that point. Uh, everybody's a Democrat pretty much in the house. Yeah, everybody, or, yeah. In, there in were 12 Republicans. Yeah, and you begin to rise up as a fairly young guy, into, you know, some influential and leadership roles, um, majority leader and other. Talk to our listeners about Majority what, whip, majority whip, leader. Yeah, yeah chairman of education committee, yeah. youngest in the country on those positions, wow. and speaker pro tem. But let me tell you what was. some on transportation. Too. Yeah, well, that's how you and your you daddy bet. and I got to know it. He was chairman of the Senate. Uh, highway Transportation Committee, okay, if I remember. Right. That's right. And so we're friends and worked on highway reform. So together. we did highway reform together. Right. And right. Uh, I got stories there left and right. But let me tell you about the first day I'm walking onto the floor of the House of Representatives in 1978. 
and you, you'll get sworn in. Yeah. So my daddy had told me about Saul Blot. He said, you make sure you get to know old Saul Blot because he can teach you the ropes and guide you, and it'll help you. And I'm thinking, you know, they're just already— for, Just for our listeners, longest-serving Speaker of the House in South Carolina was the longest-serving in the history of the country until recently— um, was from Barn, no, part of the Barnwell Ring. Barn, part of the Barnwell Ring. And had at the point you met him, was no longer speaker at the point you went there, but he had still served for probably 60 years at that point. Yeah, he was like the speak, what do you call it? Speaker Emeritus. Yes, Speaker yeah. Emeritus. And uh, still as a member, and probably he and a couple of guys not only ran South Carolina, they pretty much ran the United States government from South Carolina. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> literally, with the Barnwell Ring. Yeah. And so, anyway, my dad said, You just make sure you speak to him, get to know him. Well, there'd been a couple articles written about here's this young USC student going against the Marion Gresset and right. Rembrandt Dennis, yeah. and they had pictures of us facing off <laughs> the front page <laughs> of the USC Gamecock thing. And I'm like, you know, I'm getting kind of cocky yeah. now. I'm like, I'm all fired up. I'm a big dog, you know. And so that first day, you're walking onto the floor. You got the outer chamber, and that door opens, those big mahogany doors. Yes. And I'm thinking, oh, yes. man, I have arrived. It's an experience. <laughs> it I mean, it's an awesome, it is. It is. breathtaking experience. Yeah. So those two big mahogany doors or walnut doors, whatever they are, open up. And I'm like, I am walking on, you know, just cloud nine. And then you, you know, then you got the next chamber doors yeah. open, and all for me. And I'm thinking, oh <laughs> man, well, you can't believe it. The first person standing there, right there, is Saul Blot. And I'm like, oh, this is destiny. God is designed for me <laughs> to meet Saul Blot. The first moment I walk into the floor of the House of Representatives, this 21 year old kid, you know. So I go up to go shake his hand. Before I could say a word, he says, son, go get me a cup of coffee. <laughs> he thought I was a page. That's, that's well, you were younger than some of the pages. I was. I was. I was younger than most, most of the pages. Son, and so the whole chamber freezes. <laughs> they realize what's going on. And I'm like, I've got a choice to make right there. Do I say, you old goat, yeah. you know who I am? Yeah, right. Or do what I did. <laughs> Black. Sugar, cream. Good for you. And he said black. And I turned, and I have no idea where the coffee machine is. But every page in there is frozen. And I look, I turn around, and there's a, a page was about 15 feet away, and she points that, like that way. That's where the so I go is. get the coffee, come back, hand it to him. Well, I hand it to him. You know, it's a page you yeah. just walk on. But right. I didn't. He looks at me like, son, why are you still you standing want? there? Yeah. I'm like, Mr. Speaker, I'm David Beasley. And he said, oh, my gosh, son, I am so sorry. And because I humbled myself, which was not that natural to do, it paid extraordinary dividends because he took me under his wings and he taught me the ropes, you know, the rules and the decorum and how to respect and how to make things happen. And so I would make an argument that's part of the reason why I became Youngest speaker, pro tem, youngest majority leader, and youngest chair. You're now seventy. That was seventy eight when you got sworn in. January is when you took you yes. know official. Yes. You know, session. quick story about Saul Blot. Of course, my dad was elected to the House in sixty four, when Speaker Blot was Speaker, and Dad was you know a, a young renegade. I mean, he was advocating for change and and, and social <laughs> progress and things like that. And one time. Speaker Blight just ripped him a new one, you know, on the floor from the speaker's well. And my father took his microphone and looked him dead in the eye and said, well, I guess I'm a chip off the old blot. <laughs> I love it. Hey, Governor Beasley, who was speaker then if, if, if Blot had left? Rex Carter. Rex Carter. Rex Carter, Carter then Raymond, Raymond Schwartz, then, then your uncle. Then um, Bob. Yeah, then Raymond, Raymond Schwartz was Sumter. 
Yeah, yeah. Raymond's from Sumter. Really good guy. Yeah. Um, we had some really good speakers. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. So it's a pleasure now to introduce my good friend, the president and CEO of Lexington Medical Center, Todd Augsburger. Todd, thanks for being our sponsor. We're excited to sponsor. Thanks so much. So Lexington Medical Center, what is it you want people in the Midlands to think about when they think about LMC? I'd like everybody to remember that Lexington Medical Center is your only locally governed independent healthcare system taking care of folks here in the Midlands of South Carolina, trying to treat each of you like our friends and neighbors. You know, Todd, I've had great personal experiences with Lexington Medical Center. I can speak to it because I had a recent procedure this year and um, everything just went like clockwork. So thank you for the great job you do and thanks for being a sponsor of Bourbon in the Background. Okay, we're back and I am with a really good friend of mine. She's the vice president of the group and individual division at Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, Stephanie DeFries. Hello, Stephanie. Hey, Joel. Thanks for having me. Stephanie, thanks for being here. Isn't it true, Stephanie, that when the changes came about during the Affordable Care Act, Blue Cross Blue Shield is the only company that has been here from the beginning and has stayed the course offering health insurance to hundreds of thousands of individuals and families in South Carolina? Yes, that is exactly right. And in fact, with the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the state and stable pricing, we continue to see more and more people choosing Blue Cross for their health insurance. Plus, Joel, as you know, all of our customer service is done right here in South Carolina. And I think people like that fact that they are working with someone local who can assist them. That is awesome. Stephanie, thank you for being here. And thank Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina for being a sponsor of Bourbon in the Background. Let's talk a little bit about what changed during your time in the House that led you to decide to run for governor and to switch parties. You know, that was, oh gosh, what year was that? 1992 or three or right. something like that. Remember, the Republican Party took over just to orient you to the 91, House. In 94, they took over the House. Well, yeah, because I was one yep. of the conservative Democrats. Yep. And I, I would say, you know, back then, you know, and now, quite frankly, you get frustrated with both parties. I mean, today, it's a gosh, mess. I, you know, it, both parties are it, completely out of both, control. All, all of us in this it, it really is. It's heartbreaking because people like you and I, we're in the middle. Right. You know, we might lean a little left here, might lean a little right here, but generally we are in Pragmatic, the middle. Pragmatic, right. But back then, and, you, and your daddy and I talked about this a number of times, sure. and your uncle and I talked about this, and I said, yeah, guys, you know, the, the, the National Party is just going so far left. It's just going too far. Then the, at that time, the Republican Party was moving more toward the middle. It used right. to be it was kind of far, far, far right, but it would move more toward They the, were making a play for those moderate voters, the Democrats. So that's right. It's amazing years. how that pendulum just swings back and forth. That's right. right. So we'll it talk about it that is a pendulum. Yeah. And so— so when I when I ran for governor, uh, so you remind, you switched parties in ninety one or two. Okay. I think it was ninety one. But was that to set up a run for governor, or was that just you were just frustrated and you that, no, no, that was pretty much to set up a run for governor okay, back that fair time. Enough. Yeah, uh, as we were thinking about the possibilities at that time, and because. Um, Governor Campbell and some others wanted me to run, and I still wasn't 100 percent sure because you can imagine I was from the most Democrat area right. of the state. It was the there was no Republican yeah. base in the PD, yeah. and you would be running against back at that time. The Republican base vote was Charleston and Greenville right. and Lexington County. Well, I was running against two a sitting congressman, a former congressman, 
uh, and several candidates from Lexington County. Tommy Hartnett. Tommy Hartnett. Arthur Rabinow. Yeah. Was, who else was in that race? Oh, my gosh. You had uh, from Lexington County, was Jim Miles oh, in yeah. that race, wow. too? Boy, these are names Corson was in the race, John yeah. Corson. Yeah, Corson uh, was in that race briefly. Oh, I didn't he realize Corson. Corson. And Hartnett had like millions of dollars, yeah. Ravenel because of the congressional packs. Yeah, I would have thought Hartnett would have been the favorite at that He point. was. He was yeah. at 30-something percent of the poll. Yeah. I was 1% in the polls. Yeah. And uh, that's a whole nother story for a whole nother day. But, boy, I was just campaigning. I just felt like my message was right. If I could get my message out, even though I was 36 years old, I felt like, you know, we could get it done. And, and of what course, we did. What was your message? What was your message in the 1994? Yeah, 1994. Oh, my gosh. Let me reach back into, <laughs> and back into the back room, big, deep bourbon well, back room. bourbon in the back room. So. And so it was back then it was basically, you know, you grow an economy from the private sector. How do we strengthen families? Get back to basics and in education. And you had education. the Carol Campbell years to kind of leverage off of because he was popular. That's right. Yeah. Carol Campbell was popular, leveraged off of that. Did and he endorse in that race in the primary? I can't. His, I don't know if he officially endorsed, but I think it was a wink and a nod type of endorsement. Because his campaign team was was working. Was your team. Okay, yeah, yeah. Enough. Which had to be really helpful because they really had created Republican politics in South Carolina. That's right. Yeah. yeah. yeah and that, I, I, we won't get into all that today, and there's some kind of graveyard discussion stuff, <laughs> but but uh, uh, Lee Atwater was, was wanting me to run, and I'm like, he says, you, you know you don't like the Democrat Party now. And I said, well, he says, uh, I said, well, Lee, if I am a Democrat nominee for governor, you can't beat me in a general election. Hmm. He says, I know that. I said, well, so why should I even switch? He said, anyway, that's a, we had that heart to heart discussion. I said, well, the, the national party, not the state party, but the national party was just going too far, too far. And you know, you still hear that, Joel. I mean, as, as a Demo- you know, I represented a PD County, Chester oh, yeah, County. Yeah. I mean, I heard it all the time, you know, as a Democrat in South Carolina that, that people, who otherwise would vote for me or want to vote for me were so put out with the national well, party. Back in 1998, I mean, the, the conservative Democrat base was still all throughout rural yeah, South Carolina. So when I ran, all those old rural Democrats switched on over yeah. to the Republican Party right. in 1998. In 94. 94, I mean, 94. All right, so, so you run, let me just take you, because I remember this. Yeah. All right, I mean— you know, I was all of uh, and was, thirty-two years old, and and, and but was, hey, my best friends in the House and the Senate were the Democrats. Absolutely, yeah. I knew those guys. And, you and, win and, the and guess what? They still are. And they still are. <laughs> you win the primary. Was there a runoff? Oh a, my gosh, was there a runoff? You and yeah. Me and No Ravenel. You and Ravenel. And there was a runoff in the Democratic side as well. Sure, I, I was right. Holly about that. So Joe, Joe Riley and, and Nick. I mean, those yeah. are, those races. You know, now the races. I mean, I ran a couple of them myself. They're um. You don't have the same level of contenders. Let's just put it that way. It's a different ball. Oh, yeah, no, today. I mean this was, I mean this was y- y'all's race was extremely hotly contested. The Theodore Riley, I was telling Holly, right. Right, the Theodore Riley race went into a recount. Holy and, moly! Yeah, yeah. And, and and you, Vincent, it was funny. I was in charge of counting votes for Theodore, and I'm sitting across the table debating the Riley. Um, person who happened to be Dwight Drake at the oh time. My and he and I wow. were, you know, checking off balance, debating. So you win the primary, and then you find yourself in a very close general election against a very likable former lieutenant governor from Greenville, Nick Theodore. Most popular be, guy in the state. Who'd be yeah. fun to get on this show. Yeah. Just what a great, great guy. He, well, I mean, everybody loved Nick. Yeah, I don't care where you were from. So I had to really make this a campaign about 
the future, progressive, young leadership for the future. It's versus, generational. Versus, right? yeah. hey, I love Nick, but it's, you know, it's time to hang your cleats up kind sure. of thing. And I didn't want to say anything bad against Nick because I loved him to death. And, sure. you know, it's his daughter and his son were very close friends. And yeah. we had dated all of the inner circles, so to speak. And, oh, my God, what a great family. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. Great family, yeah. Anyway. So you win that race about 51 to 48. Uh, yeah, something like that, yeah. So so for those of us who haven't been governor, what was it like? <laughs> you know, I think the two greatest jobs in the world for getting things done are governor and president. Your executive role, you make decisions, you set goals, objectives, and you execute a plan. Yeah. The other best job in the world is the World Food Program, and I'll <laughs> explain, I'll explain why later. We're waiting for your yeah. presidential run, and we'd like you to run this year. <laughs> we'd like you to run this year. Even Dan and the grandfather aren't bad. <laughs> no, no, that's a job that, that, that I mean, God knows that's so you, the best job in the world. So you enjoyed your time as governor. Yeah, it was four great years. I remember after the second year, we passed everything. Yeah. David Wilkins and I were together. Remember David Wilkins? Oh, he former. was our speaker. Yeah. Well, David and I were together about a week ago, and David says, uh, you know, you and I, we got everything done yeah. in the first two years. And then it was like, well, what do what we are do we now? Do? I said, well, if I hadn't got everything done, I probably wouldn't have touched the flag and I'd have been reelected. Well, but I want to ask you about that. Okay, we're going to talk in a second about video poker and the Confederate flag. Because when people think of the Beasley administration, those are the two issues that come top of mind. Okay? Yeah. And we're yeah. going to dig in those in a second. I'm going to play a clip for you that I remember. I mean, I, I, I specifically, when we were doing some research for this, I said, Holly, I know there is a clip of him giving a speech because I remember watching it and how inspired I was as a young Democrat going, you know what, I campaigned against this guy and hell, he, he's a stand-up guy. But other than those two issues, when you want people to think about the Beasley administration, what should we think about during your four years of governor, setting aside poker and, and the Confederate flag? You know, when you set aside the issues, because what the world lacks right now, in my opinion, is real leadership. Not on a particular issue, but when I lost that night in 1998, I remember bringing the team in. I said, I want to ask you three questions, because this, in my opinion, determines the character and the strength of a leader. Number one, did we do what was right? Number two, when we did what was right, did we do it at the right time? And number three, when we did what was right at the right time, did we do it the right way? Not out of judgment and divisiveness, right. but out of love, compassion, and unity. And I said, if you answer the, those three questions, yes, then we have been successful. And to me, that's what it's all about. The issues, issues come and they go. They come and go. They do. They do. But and the, in fact, they usually come. Go and then come back again. And we're going oh, to yeah. see that. Because yeah. right, <laughs> we all got to deal with the Confederate flag as well. All right. But before that, Governor, um, you, you there were a couple things that I remember standing out. You really talked about putting families first. You had a very mm. pro-family agenda, <clears throat> yeah, your yeah. business. I want to I'm gonna play a clip for you in a second, but 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 your four years as governor, there was a lot more that took place than the debates over the flag and video poker. What stands out for you in those four years? Uh, economic development. Sure. I mean, what we did to really move. Carol Camel had built, a, built an extremely good positive economic Was base. Was that BMW with Governor Campbell? I mean, BMW, he, he laid the framework, and then we took it to a whole other level. So we went from about $2 billion a year in international and economic development to $6 billion a year. And I'm, I'm, I mean, this is 20-something years ago. I'm really trying to pull my yeah, head back great. into this yeah. stuff. And so— 
it was not just jobs that we were bringing in Charleston because you had base closure in Greenville. But what we did was a Rural Enterprise Act and many special pieces of legislation that incentivized companies to expand in rural, economically depressed areas. So our employment rate when I was elected was the worst in the United States. Mm. That's not a a bad thing as to Carroll Campbell because he was building the framework, the foundation to build on. Within two years, we were like number one in America in job growth unemployment rate. It was so good. Personal income growth. Those That, to me, was one of the great things. The other thing was, of course, back to basic education, welfare reform, criminal justice reform. Right. You know, the whole nine yards. I could go kind of you know, on and on. Yeah. Highway infrastructure, man, your dad and I yeah, worked yeah, on. Yeah. And- Governor, it just reminds me, I've, I'm, Joel knows, because I like to talk about the podcast, I'm writing a book on South Carolina government and politics and how it works, and there's this... It's going to be a real sleeper. It's going to be a good one. Governor's <laughs> going to read it. There's this idea that governors in South Carolina don't have the ability or the power to do something, do things, which is completely not true anymore. And I think you and your administration really showed that if you have a governor who's effective... Yeah. And look, governors now have way more power than you had then. You know, now they have power to appoint every uh, leader in the in the state agencies, pretty much. So I was the first that. governor to have a cabinet. Had a cabinet. And now that but it was still was building was. after that, right. as you referred to, because Campbell uh, passed that yep. to give the governor more authority, and we took it to a whole nother level. But the office of the governor is a bully pulpit to to manage the issues of the day, and we did that. And yep. speaking of bully pulpits, gentlemen, I want to turn your attention to the screen. The year is 1997. The month is November. Let's play this. <laughs> clip of Governor David Beasley giving a primetime address to the state of South Carolina. Oh, that was a whole nation, if I remember. We have to get beyond the name calling and stereotyping. We must sit down, black and white, Republican and Democrat, to ask what is right. And then we must have the courage to do what is right. I have a question for us tonight. Do we want our children to be debating the Confederate flag in 10 years? If we stay on the present course, Such will be their fate, and the debate will not subside, but intensify. I don't want that for my children or yours. And what about honoring our heritage and those who fought for it? Do we do them honor by continuing on our present course? After much prayer, I have concluded we do not. You see, the Confederate flag flying above the State House, it flies in a vacuum. Its meaning, its purpose are not defined by law. And because of this, any group can give the flag any meaning it chooses. The Klan can misuse it as a racist tool, as it has. And others can misuse it solely as a symbol for racism, as they have. The Confederate flag is being torn asunder. Our proud heritage and the courage of those who came before are being dishonored. I respect it and them too much to allow the flag's misuse to continue. I therefore will call upon the General Assembly to adopt the 1997 South Carolina Heritage Act, which once and for all will institutionalize our proud heritage. While we can't stop the misuse of the flag, we can, by law, rightfully define it and permanently protect it. Governor, it just gives me chill bumps to listen to you give that speech to the state, to the nation. I think it was on, uh, now that we we talk about to the, to the nation, and and... Man, you what a what a vision you had. Yeah, well, you you saw what we would have to grapple with yeah. down and the road, which we up, did. He set it up, Vincent, because um, I watched the whole speech. He set it up talking about church burnings mm-hmm. that had yeah, happened yeah. earlier in yeah, the yeah, year, yeah, and, and you used the term hate crime. African American churches. Yeah, well, African American churches. You yeah. used the term hate crime, and here you were talking about 
I don't want it to be debated for 10 years and how people misuse it. And then, of course, remember working with you and Vincent helped lead that effort in 2015 after the terrible tragedy in Charleston. David Beasley, what inspired you to stand up a year before your reelection and say the time has come? There was no political gain at all for taking, <laughs> touching that flag. Yeah. Nothing. I, and I get that from my mama. I mean, I, I mean, my mama's dead now, but God knows you said what you thought you needed to say. You did it when it needed to be done. And that was the thing about doing what's right at the right time. So when I asked my staff that night after the loss, I said, did we do what was right at the right time? And they said, regretfully, yes. Well, Governor, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, I did the same thing in 2014 during my gubernatorial race. And I got a lot of calls from friends saying, why did you do that? You should have never done that. That was crazy to do. And in, in 2015, though, when those murders occurred, I knew I had done it at the right time, and I did it for the right reason. You know, and you look yourself in the mirror every day for the rest of your life, and you say, I did what was right. I did what was good. And winning winning is, is a relative thing. And if you're running just to win, then you need to rethink why you're into this thing. But, but as to this matter, it was – it was a tough decision because the question was timing. And I knew I could wait after the election, get reelected, because at the time there was a lot of question who was going to be the next presidential candidate. Sure. Me, Bush, right. Tom Ridge. Yeah. There was a couple of Bush and I were real close friends. And, and look, look, you would have, even if you weren't president, um, you would have been a Republican governor in the state that was going to decide who the nominee was. And if you weren't president, you'd be something pretty close. He that, was a rising right. star. Yeah. I saw a video. Um, you can tell Governor who does the research for this show and who doesn't. But anyway, I saw a video where you were like the rising star at the Republican Governors Association. Yeah, I was head, I've head of all 32 Republican governors. Next year, I was going to be the head of all 50 governors. And yeah. so no one thought that I could lose. I mean, no one. All right, I want it was to a back, weird I want to go back though. to this moment, though, because, you know, the flag, was it really a source of— debate and controversy in 97, or did it become one once you had this media event? You just touched on something that not many people realize. It was not. I sensed that if I didn't do it then, that it would would have such serious repercussions down the road. And I, not getting all the details, but we were negotiating again with some international companies, mm-hmm. and some of the unions were playing this this race card about the flag. Because we did have the boycott going on. Uh, there was a whole lot of things yeah. going did on. Did we have the boycott going on? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there was it was a, quiet. Uh, but it was, it was that's going. right. But I, I These could companies just, would have known. Yeah, no, that's right, yeah. and the private discussions. Right. And so I saw down the road that this needed to get resolved. And there was no, there just was no justification for flying it over the dock. Yeah. I mean, come on, guys. If you love your neighbor, you, you know. It was it, offensive to the people it, who it was offensive right. to, and why was, would we do that? Why, why would we, what's the purpose for it? Right. Put, put it in an appropriate place. And so you had to thread that needle with the message because there were a lot of people in this state who thought, look, I, I don't know if I disagree with you, but I ain't nobody will come down here and tell me what yeah, to do. Right. You know that yeah, in South yeah, Carolina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I said, you know what? It's never going to get resolved unless a white male Republican takes this as you want. Now, that was the thinking in 1997, 98. It just, a, a Democrat wasn't going to do it. It took somebody that had such a great support from the white Republican right. base in South Carolina. And I felt like if I did it, it would divide that up and we would it would allow for a, a solution going forward. Now, I made the decision before I went public that this would end my career. 
I had made the decision that there's no gain for me politically to take this on before the election, particularly with with the video poker thing going on, because yeah. we know the story there. I mean, yeah, they, right. they put and 20, it, 30 million and cash And me. also that was a, a potentially loss of a rural white base that was oh, involved in that. Huge, yeah. huge. And Jim Hodges uh, exploited that in yeah. a good way. And look, Jim's a friend. I like Jim. I That's nothing negative. Well, but he took in advantage a of it. Way, we'll and I, no, that's right. He did it, and, and, and he ran a good campaign. And some of the funniest ads I've ever seen in my life are against What was me. the guy's name? Bubba. Bubba. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, Bubba. So I was on a panel with uh, Governor Hodges last week. Told yeah. him I was, was going to be with you this week, and he told me to tell you hello. And oh. I, I think it's part of what's great about how South Carolina was that people like you and he and Nick Theodore all got along and, and still do. No, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, you do what you think's right, and you fight for it, and at the end of the day, you're still friends. And, and we That's had the a way tra- it should be, though. Right? Uh, it is. We had a transition of government. I mean, Jim and I, when he won, I was like, you know, I could have gone out there that night and just blown the hell yeah. out. All oh, the election was stolen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm like, <laughs> hey, he's the governor. Jim, what do you need from me? I'm going to make this transition the best well, transition possible. I'll, I, Mark Sanford is a friend, and we've had him on the show. But I will say a lot changed when he became governor. <laughs> but, you know, but you know, Governor, you you took two positions on two controversial issues that an overwhelming majority of South Carolinians today agree with you and appreciate the way you handled them. And clearly, as you've said, undoubtedly, they cost you your reelection. Well, as Bob Novak, I don't know if you remember sure, the columnist yeah, Bob yeah. Novak and David Broder. It was like a week after the election. I was in Washington D.C. and both of them were sitting there together. Two famous, you know, political Absolutely. columnists. You watch them on TV. And they said, "Beasley, you're the last living casualty of the Civil War." Aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Yeah, I think I am." All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. You know, when we were in the Senate, I really enjoyed working with the South Carolina Realtors Association. They really helped me better understand my community. It's true, Joel. They also helped us a lot with our constituents. And by the way, my son is a realtor. And I'm very proud of your son. He also used to be a director of the podcast. <laughs> Vincent, they tend to lend their expertise, their their knowledge of the local real estate market is extremely valuable in helping us understand what's going on. It's true, Joel. And also, remember, we were in the Senate. They were a very powerful voice to ensure that policies supporting property rights and the promotion of fair housing practices occurred. Those are things they care about. I couldn't agree with you more. And that's why, Vincent, we are pleased to have the South Carolina Realtor Association as a proud sponsor of Bourbon in the Back Room. We'll be right back. Governor, I'm going to move us on a little bit. Um, after your uh, time as governor, you, you went back to Darlington. You ran for the United States Senate, and sometimes people forget about that. I, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> You're happy to forget about it. Uh, and, of course, you know, God, I wish you'd have won, because instead we got Jim DeMint. Um, well, I'm glad I didn't win, though. <laughs> well, probably you probably better serve or not. I remember this. You came in first. Yes. And then I'm going to ask Vincent a trivia question, because you know this. Jim DeMint came in second, but there was a very close third. Oh. Who then endorsed Jim DeMint? I remember them walking together. I don't know that I remember that. You ready for this? Who is Thomas Ravenel? Wow, the Ravenels strike again. Yeah. Um, well, he's got quite a history, as we know. Yeah, yeah. So, so that doesn't work out. Jim DeMint is our senator. If you ask anybody in South Carolina on the street now who Jim DeMint is, they will have forgotten completely because he didn't do anything while he was senator, uh, and he lives somewhere in Washington D.C. <laughs> working for a think tank. And then you, I want you to talk about your involvement around the world 
prior to your appointment because I know you were deeply involved in charity work around the world. And I want you to share with our listeners what you were doing. Well, there was a, there's a group of, of men and women in the United States Senate and the House been meeting together <coughs> since World War II. And it's not like it's a confidential secret group, right. but they, they meet together uh, since World War II and the Roosevelt days, and those relationships and friendships have continued. And so that's a long story that I, we just don't have time to get into here. But needless to say, it was that group of men and women that I was traveling around the world, meeting with parliament leaders from country to country to country to build peace, better relations, uh, have them meet together, different parties, come together, pray together, have time together. Uh, no matter what your religion, no matter what your politics, let's just be brothers and sisters and move a nation forward, help the poor, help the needy kind of thing. And again, that's not doing really service to what we were doing. So I was going to 30, 40 countries a year meeting with leaders. And many of those parliament leaders now are prime ministers and presidents. Uh, yeah, makes sense. And so uh, what was remarkable was when I got this phone call, Trump gets elected in 2016. So I was meeting with my friends in the Senate and the House. It was after the election, and it was in December, early December. And one of Trump's guys called and said, hey, will you come down to the— And, and just from—this group yeah. is a bipartisan group of— it's, Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's Democrat and Republicans. And they have worked in informal ways to try to advance international relationships and— uh, That's right. And Peace. security around the world. And before you get to that phone call, though, I'm just curious about this. Because you're traveling these—I read this, 30 countries a year, in Kosovo, South Sudan, Sudan, Tunisia, Yemen. You're going on and on and on. Are you doing it on behalf of any sponsored organization, or is no, it, not really, yeah. not really. That's pretty we, amazing. It's an informal, yeah. informal way. Yeah, Total to informal. To we we really try to keep it where it was just friends. Right. We're just friends. Right. Uh, no, no corporation, no organization. Though there's always organizations involved, but here. Uh, I was going really on behalf of the friends in the Senate and the House and okay. the White House and because we were all in this together to try to build these better so relationships. So you built these relationships, and you've been involved in this work, and then 2016 rolls around. So 2016 rolls around, and and I'm walking. Uh, I have a, a phone call with someone in the Trump uh, transition team over at the near the White House. Yeah. There were two transition offices, one in Washington, one in New York. And, uh, and this guy said, hey, will you come meet with us? We, we know— about your history around the world and these international relations, and we would like to ask you what are the top issues around the world. And I said, sure. And I had an hour to kill after I'd meeting with the senators in the Senate, and so I thought it was like 45 degrees, mm. not raining. I thought, I'm going to walk from one end of Pennsylvania right. Avenue to the other. And while I'm walking, my you know, we've got cell phones now, right. you know, so my phone rings. It was an old left-wing liberal buddy of mine from the United Nations. Hey, Governor, how you doing? And I said, Bob, I know you don't call it a chit chat. <laughs> what do you want? He says, you know, he was a big UN guy, big, right. big, big. He was the, anyway, so he's the guy that gets me engaged in this. Okay. And uh, so I said, Bob, what do you want? He says, you know, we're scared of Trump. Talking about the UN. I said, yeah. well, you should be. <laughs> and we, we kind of laughed. And I said, so Bob, what do you want? He says, would you consider a, a role with the Trump administration? I said, no, I didn't do it with Bush, who was one of my best friends, and I don't want to do it with Trump. Now, you got to think this is this was before he took office. Right. right? And uh, Before I, I, some things happened. Yeah, before yes. some things happened. And, um, <clears throat> and he said, would you take a, a senior role with the United Nations? I said, 
Are you kidding me? And, uh, and then, no kidding. I remember the night before, my wife, Mary Wood, whom we all know is an angel. Everybody yeah. knows that's an angel. And so she said, the world's in trouble. Leaders like you need to reengage. And I said, I know you're not asking me to get back involved. She said, no, I'm not. Just don't knee-jerk say no without praying about it. So I remembered what Mary Wood said, and I said, Bob, what are you thinking about? He says, the United Nations World Food Program. I said, Bob, I really don't know anything about it. I said, but the guy that was the ambassador to the World Food Program from the United States is kind of a prayer partner of mine, a Democrat, former congressman from Ohio, Tony Hall. I said, I'm going to hang up with you. I'm going to call Tony. I'll call you Mm -hmm. back. I called Tony. I said, Tony, the United Nations World Food Program. Oh, my God. If there's ever God's work on earth, wow. it's the United Nations World Food Program. No, he said the World Food Program. I said, the United Nations World Food Program, you know, kind of joking. Yeah, right. And he says, no, let me tell you, the United Nations got its issues, but the World Food Program yeah. is amazing. So I said, all right, let me, let's talk more about it. So I went, went and met with the senators, and they said, Beasley, you got to do it. You're the only one that can talk Trump out of zero in the budget, and you're the only one it can truly message why this program is critical to not just saving lives, but stabilizing nations around the world. You just don't know that right. until you actually and, get on. And the, therefore the, the security of the United States. The, well, we, I can talk about yeah. this all day long yeah. with anybody. And so that was uh, led to the issue. And so I said, all right, senators, Democrat and Republican senators, if I do this, you go promise me that you will fight to override any veto and put the money in necessary to move the program forward. And so that was uh, when I took the position was April in 2017, a five-year term, which began the greatest adventure and journey of my life. All right, Governor, we're going to play another clip for you um, from your time as the director of the UN World Food Program. This is an interview you did with CBS Face the Nation, and it really was just for those of us that had not seen it before, and I was watching today, it just kind of left me dumbfounded. Here we go. Let's play this. Also made us proud. If you don't reach the people where they are, it's going to cost you a thousand times more. Let me just give you an example. And this is typical. We feed 125 million people on any given day, week, or month. And I know from firsthand experience, people don't want to leave home. They don't want to migrate. But if they don't have food, and for example, in Syria, we can feed a Syrian in Syria for 50 cents a day. That same Syrian ends up in Berlin or Brussels, the United States. The humanitarian support package is $70 a day. Let me give you an example just on the United States border. We can support for $1 to $2 a week individually families in Guatemala to give them food security. But if you go back and look at the analysis, the Washington Post did a story whereby there are shelters along the border, shelters for children, $3,750 per child per week. And for $1, we can give food security for that child at home. Tell us about that clip and about your t- your experience in this incredible program that you managed. Well, when I took this role, you know, having been a former governor, you set goals, objectives, benchmarks, right. measurables, and achieve things. So I'm thinking world population at the time was 7.6 <laughs> billion people. There were 80 million people at the time, as we would say, marching to starvation, not wow. knowing where the next meal is coming from. That's different than chronic hunger. Okay. Uh, and so when you think 200 years ago, there was 1.1 billion people on planet Earth, and there was 95% of the people in extreme poverty. Today, or when I took the job, 
less than 10% in extreme poverty of a population of 7.6 billion. Which is a great success story. So we have built programs and institutions and put in place things that are really sharing more wealth than any time period in world history. Now, try telling that to the 10%. I know, I know. So the, I'm telling a lot of young people today, don't tear down the system that's right. reaching the 90. Let's fight like hell with all of our might and soul to reach that last 10% so they can experience these good things. So I'm thinking 80 million people, I could put the World Food Program out of business. <laughs> There's no way we can't put the World Food Program out of business, only to find out 80 million jumped to 135. Uh-huh. In a year. And is why? That, yeah, why? Is why? That, yeah, man-made that, conflict uh-huh. and climate shocks. Then it jumps from 135 to 276 million people. And is that also connected to the, the immigration crisis that we've seen across the world, the migration crisis, it, those shocks? Well, the shock, yeah, no, 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 no doubt about that. You've got more people migrating now because of climate shocks, yeah. a movement, 30 million this past year. It could be a cyclone. It could be flash flooding. could be droughts. It could be any, many factors. I know, and I was doing some work on behalf of, of Lebanon a few years back when we saw the Syrian crisis yeah. turn into a crisis in Lebanon and actually called you for some some help. Yeah. And you were already working to try to feed those refugees in Lebanon. But what we've seen there with the Syrian crisis and the war, what we're seeing now um, – in Ukraine and Russia, those feed into these problems. Is that uh, all of it? Does yeah. it, it's you can't have peace without without food, and you can't have uh, you know, food without peace. It's, they're what, tied together. What's the future look like? It's not good. The number went from as we were saying, hundred. I mean, from eighty million to one hundred thirty-five to two hundred seventy-six, and that was before COVID. So COVID comes along, uh, just supply chain disruption, economic <laughs> devastation of poor, poor countries. Then you have Ukraine crisis. The bread basket of the world grows enough food to yeah. feed 400 million people, and now all of a sudden it's got the longest bread lines of the world. Wow. So here you are, number 350 million people not knowing where the next meal is coming from. And so I raised last year alone $14.4 billion, $39.4 million per day, seven days a week, 365. So we were able to reach 160 million people last year. So we averted mass famine, hmm. destabilization of nations around the world, and mass migration. So I have a question about that. I know yeah. That when you say you raised, what was that number again? $14.4 billion. And is that usually coming from countries around the world? Is it coming from industry? Where do where, how do you raise $14 uh, You call the Lurie family and Gene <laughs> family. All right, pony up, guys. All right, you, you, <laughs> put, no, a, that's not you true. put about a $1,000 dent in it. Where do you, but where do you get the rest? Seriously. It, it's from the, it, from the governments. And yeah. so that was the, the, the big case that I was able to make in such a, as I would tell the UN, quit talking this UN lingo. Nobody yeah. knows what in the heck you're saying. Speak the language so that the average congressman, senator knows what you're talking about because their concerns are the same whether it's in Bundestag in Germany or the Canadian Parliament or the United States House and Senate. They want to know, why should I send money down to Nicaragua or right. Ethiopia when I got road bridge problems, school funding problems, sure. Medicare, Medicaid funding problems here? And I said, well, let me explain. If you're not going to do it out of the goodness of your heart, you better do it out of your financial interest and or your national security yeah, interest. Right. Now, let me get experiential anecdotal evidence to you to show you what I'm talking about. For example, this is now people migrating to Mexican border, children's shelters, $60 million a week, $3,750 <clears throat> per child in a shelter per week. I can feed that same child 
in a very successful program back in their home in Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, whatever, for one to two dollars. You, you just referenced that in, your, in the clip we played. It, exactly. it, yeah. it ain't complicated. Right. Now, you, there's not an option C here. Right. It, it's like I don't care if you're talking the most extreme left or extreme right. Yeah, but I'm like, well, here's your option. You yeah. want to pay? You want to pay one to two dollars a week? Or three thousand seven hundred fifty. Right. Even if it's a week. just you looking out for your own self interest, it makes sense. To it's help. like and it's like having leaking water lines in your ceiling, and it's gonna cost you two hundred dollars to fix it. Well, you think I, I ain't got two hundred dollars? Okay, you don't. <laughs> You're not gonna have a roof any longer. Well, right? you're gonna have to replace the roof, <laughs> the right. ceiling, the carpet, the flooring, the tables, and it's gonna cost you thousands of dollars. And so, yeah, I've made that same argument on Medicaid expansion, Governor. <laughs> you know, if you don't do it out of the goodness of your heart, do it because it makes sense, Governor. In twenty twenty. While you were director of the UN World Food Program, um, you received, and you've received so many honors, but this has to be at the top of that list, the Nobel Prize. And and I'm going to read a quote that you, you gave that night when you accepted this, quoting David Beasley here, I don't go to bed at night thinking about the children we saved. I go to bed weeping over the children we could not save. And when we don't have enough money, nor the access we need, we have to decide which children eat and which children do not, which children live, which children die. That was a pretty strong statement. I mean, that that gives me chill bumps just to, to read it. But what you saw in your experiences will stay with you the rest of your life. No, it's not like you're sitting in some ivory tower somewhere. I'm out there in the field. I'm seeing life and death right before my very own eyes. As I was going to 75 or more countries per year, and we were talking about war zones, 80% of our operations are in war zones and places of hell. And I'm seeing children die right before my very own eyes. And these these are not numbers. These are real children with real moms and dads, and it's just heartbreaking. That quote came as a result. You remember Scott Pelley, 60 Minutes? Yeah, sure. So yeah. Scott Scott and I are doing a heck of a story. on it, and, and Scott's like, Beasley, you got the greatest job on the planet. <laughs> The greatest job. I said, Scott, I do. But I'm going to tell you something that you hadn't thought of, and it's going to bother you. And he looked at me like, what are you talking about? And that's when I gave that quote. Yeah. And I, I don't go to bed at night thinking about the children we saved. I go to bed at night heartbroken over the children we couldn't reach. And then after that, and that's, that's not in the quote, I said, you know what really ticks me off? There's $400 trillion of wealth on the planet today. And we got children dying every five seconds from starvation. I said, it's wrong. Didn't you challenge Elon Musk on this? Oh, my gosh. That's a whole nother story. But, but good for you because I'm not what, you know, I think that was a, a great opportunity to say, here's this guy flying all over the world or out of the world in the universe. And yeah, we got yeah. starving children. Well, it's him and Zuckerberg and Bezos and a what few others. What was your exact comment to them, though? Well, I was, it was a Saturday. We were in a, a team meeting working on global issues. And uh, in Rome, and uh, we were having a little hour break, and you know, never give a governor or executive an hour break. You know, they go come up with something. something. So I'm thinking, oh man, I'm gonna tweet, I'm gonna tweet <laughs> the, the Musk and them. You just made during this is right in the height of COVID. They were making the average net worth increase was something like, oh gosh, forty. I forgot how many millions of dollars it was, billions of dollars a day. The net worth increase, and I'm like, all you got to do is give me one day's worth of your net worth increase. And we can solve hunger for this year. Feed the world. And so anyway. I'm guessing that's not a Tesla you drove over. It wasn't a Tesla. But, you know, (laughs) we got a great respect for each other. And and he got in the game. At least he got in the game and started getting combative with me. And everywhere I went in the world, 
people were like, what's, what's, what's happening? What's happening? It doesn't matter where you yeah. went. And so he and I sort of have a some mutual friends, and we yeah. kind of have a little ceasefire going on. But uh, but anyway, that phone call that night, that day about the Nobel Peace Prize, that's a phone call you just don't get every day. No. That was no. an amazing day. No. And we're proud of you, and the state was so proud of you and what you did there. And, of course, he had our friend Gresham Barrett, who served in the House with yeah, us. You yeah. took him to Rome with you to help work on oh, the program. Oh, I was not aware of that. Yeah. yeah, Gresham and I used to play yeah. basketball together. Yeah. Governor, you've you've been a seasoned statesman. You've been a politician. You've been a Democrat. You've been a Republican. You've been a governor. Um, you've worked all over the world. Tell us why the state of politics in America is what it is. And, and, and tell us also, as someone who was elected as a Republican, as a governor, what's going on with the Republican Party and just what you see the future being um, of politics. Of politics, in America. yeah. Uh, it's not just America, it's worldwide. The whole world is getting more fragile. And, and I go to more countries per year than anybody on the planet, so I see it firsthand. <laughs> yeah. So what's happening in America is not a whole lot what's different than what's happening in a lot of places huh. around the world. And I think the primary thing is social media. That is the number one factor. And I, I'm, I don't want to speak too much out of turn here, but I, you know, when I'm speaking at the G7 or the G20 yeah. with leaders in private, I give a lot of, you know, as you can imagine, sensitive information about what's taking place. When you feed 160 million people a year, you know, if I fed everybody in, in Camden every day for two years, I know what's going on in Camden. Yeah. I yeah. can tell you exactly sure. what's going on. You're feeding everybody every day. So I was in one of the meetings. I said, if we're not careful— Social media, if we don't figure this out, it's going to bring it into democracy as we know it within 20 years. And they were all kind of taken back. I said, I'm just telling you what I'm seeing out there, what I'm feeling out there. And it's a problem. It's a serious issue. We've got it to figure this so out. so much division. It hate. does. It's so much disinformation, so much hatred. And it's just just destroying both parties, the Democrat Party and the Republican Party. I mean, we both love we love both parties, but my gosh— it's so out of control now. Well, you need and I'm two so, strong parties. You don't need you, two crazy parties. You, you do. You need two good parties, and they've been two good parties. But they're governed in many cases by the extremes today. Governor. But today is that's exactly right, and it's destroying our country. And American people are better than that, and stronger than that. And I'm hoping that we'll get past this soon. How do we get past that? I was thinking. I'd always envisioned there'd be this moment, and everybody'd say, "We got to stop." And I thought that moment was January 6th, and it lasted for maybe 48 hours. How do we <laughs> fix it, Governor? You know, uh, this is something that many of, of my friends are talking about right now. How do we create a movement, a spiritual movement, not, not religious, not political, sort of a spiritual movement across America that says, hey, how do we love our neighbor again? How do we become friends? How do we forgive each other, reconcile each other? When you think about what we did in South Carolina with the flag and the reconciling that we did, when you had all the protests back four, five, six years ago and riots, you didn't have them in South Carolina. Right. When Why? Because of all the work that we had done reconciling with each other, showing that we love our neighbor, even if we might have political differences. And I, I don't know. I, I This is something that's heavy on my heart. And I'm going to spend a lot of time the next six months meeting with university students around the country and see how they're thinking, what is the language, the lingo that they need to hear to move them out of this negative but to the positive. Because I believe that every human being is created in the image of God. I believe every human being is uniquely equal and uniquely special. And so how do we raise that spirit up that, hey, we're better than this? 
We're better than this. We're all brothers and sisters, and let's figure it out. David Beasley, if you start that movement, sign me up. Oh, you uh, Governor, me up. Governor thank you for being on our guest today on the podcast. It's been special, and um, we'll hope you'll come back and visit us again. We'll you know, and, again. and Governor, um, we say this all the time, but, you know, there are a lot of things that people can talk about you. We hear the words public servant, statesman. But at the end of the day, you're just a really good man. You are a good man, and you've done great work. And Vincent, people can only hear in-depth interviews with people like David Beasley on what podcast? Right here on Bourbon in the Backroom. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next time. Bourbon in the Backroom is produced by Jonathan Valladares, Campbell Douglas, and Austin Shaheen, directed by Holly Van Horn.